Welcome back to the Social Work Social. My name is Melanie Matthews, and I'm a registered social worker. Last season, we explored the world of mental health treatment by sharing information and stories told by social workers. This season, we're going to go even deeper by exploring how different helping professionals work with social workers to support mental health and well-being, and also to pursue social justice. Before we get started, I have two disclaimers to make. The first is that you should be aware that all the information presented in this podcast is specific to Ontario, Canada. Different professionals follow different rules and restrictions dictated by their regulatory body in their area. The second disclaimer is that nothing in this podcast should be considered medical advice or treatment. You're unique. That means that what we talk about today might not be quite right for you. So if you're interested in any topics presented here, be sure to get in contact with a professional directly. That said, let's get into today's episode. In our very first interview of this new series with allied professionals, we're going to be talking to Amrit. Amrit is an organizer, but not the Marie Kondo type. She won't organize your closet, but instead she helps train people to engage in social advocacy and then organize to make a change in their community. She's going to tell us about how her work contributes to the pursuit of social justice. There's no trigger warning for this episode. Hi, so my name is Amrit and I hold both a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Criminology and a Master's of Arts in Immigration and Settlement Studies. I am a first-generation Canadian from a Sikh and Punjabi familial background. I was born and raised in what was a town is now turned into a city of Markham, and, but I'm currently living in downtown Toronto. And to think about it, I actually have been a community organizer since like high school. Just never realized until now. Amazing. Well, thanks for being here. So your education, Master's in Immigration and Settlement, that's real specific. What is that? So it's a very niche market and a very, very niche um, program, tiny little program offered at Ryerson University. We basically looked at a lot of the different immigration policies and the different programs that we have, patterns of immigration, uh, the different types, you know, really, really focusing on just a lot of government issues, you know, the backlog and all these different things that happen and and have been happening throughout Canadian history and where I guess the immigration is going or immigration sector is going to go in the future. Back when I was in my master's and in the program, I focus on specifically this policy that we have between our lovely friends down south (laughs) called the Safe Third Country Agreement. And um, that was one of the pieces that were, or policies that we did, you know, learn about quite a bit in the program. And the policy was focused more around refugee issues and the criminalization of refugees. So yes, very specific. Very specific. What led you to being in that master's? So I know that wasn't your original intention for school. So how did you end up there? Oh, God, no. My first intention, uh, since I was like nine, um, I was on the path of being a criminal defense lawyer. I, you know, firmly did believe that um, you're always innocent until proven guilty and that every person fair, like deserves a fair chance and also, as like my thought process uh, to get to know me a little bit, is that um, my job as a criminal defense lawyer would not be to get my client off scot-free, but just the best possible outcome. That's kind of like the mindset I've always had. And so from the age of nine, I was on this like little path or my mental path of like, I'm going to go, I'm going to become a criminal defense lawyer. Eventually, I'll become a judge. 
yay me. <laughs> and this was kind of my path. And then I went into university and, you know, met a whole bunch of professors, talked to them, um, joined the Criminal Justice Student Association, really, really got to know and like see the different aspects of criminal law, especially did a whole seminar on and got to be a mock criminal defense lawyer. And my professors throughout the entire time, they got to know me really well. And they said, you will make a good lawyer, but you're going to hate your life. <laughs> and I would hate law school the most because it's going to be a repeat of my entire undergrad degree. And then just some more extra boring reading and just lawyery things. Um, it wasn't until my last year where we had a brand new course that was all about refugee issues. And um, my professor who was in that course, she and I worked very, very closely together. That's where I heard about the Safe Third Country Agreement. I was like, what the heck is this and how do I get rid of it? Because it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. And also fun fact is that I am a child of a refugee. Uh, my father was a refugee when he came to Canada for the first time ever. And so, um, you know, refugee issues are very, very close and just immigration in, in, in general is very close, near and dear to my heart because I'm the product of immigrants and immigration within Canada. And I've seen, you know, uh, the different aspects and how hard it is to get your citizenship and how hard it is to, you know, assimilate and get adjusted and then raise your kids and do all that kind of stuff as a new immigrant. I've seen it through my entire life. So after doing that course and getting some more advice from my professors, they said, you know, there is this program and it's the Immigration Settlement Studies program and you can do your entire thesis on the Safe Third Country Agreement. I was like, I like that because <laughs> it combined criminal law and also immigration law, which I ended up falling in love with and it kind of married the two. That's why I ended up going into this very specific program, <laughs> this very specific policy. What is the Safe Third Country Agreement? So the Safe Third Country Agreement is ridiculous. Um, so let's just pretend you are a, if you are a refugee from Haiti, you know, if we have a refugee from Haiti and this refugee decided, okay, you know what? I need to get, well, obviously I need to get out of Haiti because there's all these different things that are going on. My life is in danger. I'm going to go and the first place I can get to is the United States. So I go over to the States and I try and claim asylum there. You know, I said, hey, my life is in, is, is in danger. I need to seek asylum here. Please grant me like refugee status or asylum status. And the U.S. says no, because, you know, well, at least before today, Mr. Trump was in charge. Um, and he's, well, we know how he is. Um, he sucks. He's terrible. Oh, yeah, he's an ass. So... <laughs> So uh, very anti-immigration, very anti-everything. Um, so, you know, Trump says no, then, okay, well, there's these guys up north. Let me go see how, what, how you know, Canada's nice. We welcome refugees, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I, as this little Haiti refugee, go over to Canada and say, hey, my life is in danger. Um, I'm seeking asylum. I am trying to get refugee status. Please protect me. Because... I, as the refugee, already had gone to the States and asked for asylum there. Canada will automatically say no to me because I, quote, already had my chance to be in a safe third country. 
assuming, and, and it goes vice versa. So if let's say refugee from Haiti comes to Canada and Canada for whatever reason says no, they cannot go to the US. They will get an automatic denial. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, they will automatically be denied refugee status or even like their case won't even be heard. Mm -mm, not, nothing, nothing, you're automatically barred. But then there's this magical loophole, at least for the Canadian side, where let's say it's scenario one, where the refugee goes from Haiti to the US, gets denied, and is going to come into Canada. If they cross over, even if it's irregularly um, in the immigration world and criminal defense world, or like that kind of world, we don't use the word illegal, we use the word irregular. Um, so if they irregularly cross, whether it be by foot, by plane, doesn't matter what mode of transportation they got, they got into Canada, if they are on Canadian soil, they will get their case heard. But if they don't cross over, it's an automatic denial. So then what the Save Their Country Agreement does by just default is increase irregular migration because that's the loophole. It's under the charter, they're protected. Anyone on Canadian land who claims, like makes a claim for refugee status or is seeking asylum, they have to have their case heard. If they're still on the other side of the border, doesn't matter. But if they're on Canadian land, it's a must. So they're basically forced to cross irregularly. You either have to guess right the first time that the country you're applying to is gonna accept you, or you have to cross irregularly and then everyone's going to be angry at you because everyone hates illegal immigration. And I say illegal with air quotes. <laughs> yes, pretty much. That's like the very, very broad strokes of the Safe Third Country Agreement. Ridiculous. Stupid. Very, that's finest. Very ridiculous. So obviously that means that you're really into advocating for social justice issues then. What kind of work do you do in social justice advocacy? Oh, well... That's a long one. <laughs> I do many things. But um, over the last, I want to say, three years or so, it's been mainly focused on more political or, yeah, yeah political community organizing, political organizing, um, and really getting a lot of advocacy work. So, for example, you know, uh, mobilizing and organizing people at the grassroots level and getting them the training that they need to come up with proper, you know, stories or storytelling, storytelling training, um, getting the correct strategies, actually thinking about their strategies, coming up with tactics, a full on timeline, um, even as simple as how the heck do you build relationships with people in your community? How do you get to know your neighbor, you know, or get to talk to someone and canvas them to care about whatever issue it is that you care about for that time being, you know? And it kind of varies even up to lobbying your MP. How do you get your elected representatives to put your issues or, or yeah, your, the issues that you care about onto their agenda, onto their platform and actually listen to you? You know, the whole idea is to get the voices of the masses, um, to eventually like come together, advocate, do all the things and get some sort of a social change. And that's the kind of work I'm doing. So you're really bringing people together to try to work as a team to be able to achieve social justice. Yes. Yeah, it feels like a really huge job. For sure. 
It's a very hard one, I will say. <laughs> there have been many days uh, over the last few years of like 16 hour days, five days a week, you know? Social change is a constant thing. There's always, like, I think I've in the last year especially I've had like I feel like an octopus at one point like I had my hand in almost every single possible social justice thing you could like think of but even then I can still think of more that I could have joined and helped out with you know everything from at least in the last year ECEs and getting them the two dollar raise an hour uh to getting black youth to deal with social I'm sorry with uh, racism within their area or racial profiling discrimination uh to even long-term care workers you know getting them especially with the pandemic and what's going on now and getting their labor rights going on there's a whole bunch of different causes that I've worked with over the years honestly the the black youth leadership one is one that means so much to me as well, because it's the one that I worked on too. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the one that really brought us together in working on a cause because we ended up getting that grant together. It wasn't just about doing the work. It was doing all the behind the scenes stuff, making mm -hmm. sure that there's money to fund these, these social justice projects and making sure that the manpower is there. And like even setting up zoom meetings, is mm -hmm. a really huge job all by itself. It's all the behind the scenes stuff that you really don't think about, but it's yeah. really, really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people don't think that far when it comes to uh, the nitty gritty of things. You know, people think really, really big picture, like, okay, cool, we're gonna, let's say for like the Black Youth Leadership Program that we, we basically created, um, you know, on the grander scale, it's like, okay, cool, we're gonna train 200 of these youth to do um storytelling strategies tactics within their their area or their community right that's the big picture then you funnel it down how the heck do you do that <laughs> you know um and that's kind of where a lot of um my strengths came in for that specific project was like finding the facilitators finding the people finding um the core team actually tailoring down the curriculum to meet the needs of this very very high needs group you know and um, tailoring the curriculum into a method that's they're going to understand that will they'll be able to grasp into getting them actually to you know teenagers are hard to work with so getting them to participate <laughs> is a whole other story on its own um, but yeah and and then all the way down to even like the Zoom technologies you know we had the pandemic happen when we were going to be launching this program and we had to convert everything that we would have normally done in person to online. So that in of itself has been or is an interesting one. I think we've mastered that at this point, but it's very, very technical and, and quick learning and fast paced. If I were to describe a community organizer, I think that the word adaptable would be in there at like the top of the list. Yes. Um, yeah, I think at one point I was referred to like then mother is one. Um, and then another one would just be um, you know, the person who puts all the fires out, <laughs> wherever there is an issue, I will go, come, collect, here, let me fix this, here, let me go fix this, here, you, here's all the tools to fix whatever that it is that you're having an issue with. Um, yeah, a lot of it has to, you gotta be quick and think quick, especially with things like the government can change, you know, easily within a day, like we're maybe possibly gonna have a snap election soon. Could be a few months, eight weeks, could be September, you know? 
you never know. And some you have to be able to like quickly change gear <laughs> with an instance notice. Um, it's a never dull moment, a never a dull moment, I will say. Can you tell me about your political advocacy work as well? I know that you do a lot of work with the NDP party in Toronto. What kinds of work does a community organizer do with a political party? So with the people that I work with in the last year, it has been with the NDP for the most part. So I just recently worked on a by-election and with the by-election, a lot of the organizing was surrounding, you know, doing canvassing and having one-on-one, like, actually well first I think for myself it was just training the actual volunteers themselves on how to do the canvassing how to do how to recruit even other people you know that was step one how do you recruit other volunteers to go out and get the votes that we need to get um how do you go and you know canvas people how do you do all these things not only in like the in-person world but now with the pandemic how do you do it this all digitally you know, um, how the heck do we get people to go vote when they're scared to go outside? All of these different things are things that I've worked on in the last few years and well, in the last few weeks. In terms of the political advocacy work that I've done, a lot of it has been around, you know, storytelling, having your story of like this, yourself, um, connecting it to the greater community and having a hard ask. Like your hard ask could be go vote for this person or it could be sign this petition to get rid of some person, or it, it, it can be anything that you need, right? Um, and you can use your story. That's kind of the core piece of the advocacy work that a lot of organizers do, is once you got your story down, everything else kind of comes after that. Because the story piece, you go and you can connect with not only your audience, whether it be like the general public, or it could be the person that you're gonna be recruiting. Right. Or like if it's a volunteer that you need to recruit, that's almost like your pitch of like, hey, come join my team. Be cool (laughs) and get something done, you know, join a cool cause. And it's really this like big connecting piece. And then that kind of goes into other aspects, like even canvassing when you're going door to door and just talking to random people. How the heck do you connect with a random person that you've never met before, you know? And that's a lot of like the work that I have done, you know, uh, and including in the last couple of weeks, like I that I lived in downtown Toronto. The election that I was working on was all the way in Scarborough. Do I know anything about Scarborough? Not really. <laughs> but do I, was I able to get on the phone and talk to people and connect? Heck yeah. You know, because you, you as a community organizer, you get like those, the, the basic small, like the core, core piece of it. And then you're able to just connect and adapt and do all the things you need to do to eventually get some sort of social change, whether it be to elect someone in, or to get uh, you know, petitions to get a policy changed or to uh, bring people with you at a deputation even. You know, there's a bunch of different things that we could do. I feel like there's such a close connection between community organizing and social work because I feel like I do that all the time. Whenever I see a client for the first time, I have to adapt quickly to be able to connect with that person and get them to open up and to tell me things about themselves when like I might've just met that person. It's been especially difficult now with the pandemic because now I have to do that either over the phone or over a computer. So there's so many different parallels between the work that you do and the work that social workers do. Have you done any work with social workers in the past? I have. One of them is is you. Um, (laughs) 
you know, like we never worked together. Um, but a lot of the work that I have done with social workers or even um, just, yeah, mainly social workers has been more on the training side. So actually giving them the tools to go and make the changes that they want to see um, or just working with social work students. Like I've um, supervised multiple super like um, uh, social work students over the, the last couple of years and, you know, been like a mentor and all that kind of stuff to, to them. But um, a lot of my work with social workers has been primarily through the training and providing them the, with the training to kind of take, take that extra step to make the changes that they're wanting to try and make, but maybe have face blocks or barriers to, to get there. I think that's such an important role that you play as well, because I mean, social justice and advocacy are core parts of social work. We don't just sit and talk to people. We're supposed to be going out and try to make a difference in our communities. And so that's really important, but we don't actually learn a whole lot about that in school. I don't think I learned anything about that in my master's degree. I know I had one course on advocacy in my undergrad, but it wasn't super applicable to the things that I'm trying to do. So having someone out there who's able to work on helping us build those skills, honestly, it's really important. And we really appreciate the work that you do. Or I say we, but I mean me. I really appreciate the work that you do. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that quite a bit. Um, I also have helped teach a course over at Ryerson for well, I want to say three years now, probably. I think I've taught it three times now. Um, and every single year, majority of my students are social work students. And almost every single year, I get at least one of them saying that this course, which is basically the same ideologies and curriculum that, would, that go behind community organizing, should be a mandatory course for all social work students. And I think at one point, one of them was trying to get that to go forth. <laughs> she was one of my students. I kind of brought her onto the dark side, but I don't know where she got with and got, uh, got to with that one. <laughs> I should check in with her and see, because um, not only was it just the students that say that, but even um, the social work field workers that are um, out of the Ryerson department, we did a whole training with them and they were like, well, we need to have more of this. And I said, yes, you do. Um, just fun fact, that's where I got a few of our facilitators from. <laughs> yeah, it, it needs to happen more. We need to build those skills and we need to remain adaptable, especially given everything that's going on right now, both here in Canada and across the border where hopefully things are gonna start getting better, but you never know, it's good to be prepared. So I think that is extremely important and extremely valuable for social work and, and for everyone really. If you had to sum up what community organizing is. If you had to tell people in just a couple of sentences what you would want them to know about community organizing, what would you want to say to them? The first thing is that it is really, really hard work, stupidly underfunded and underpaid. <laughs> it's ridiculous at this point, but at least in the years of doing it, even though you sometimes like lose your mind because it's so insanely draining um and it's very very hard work and it can burn you out once you see the things flourish the things that you have been working towards or the people that you have trained and taught over the years and that you have mentored over the years and the teams that you've worked with over the years and 
everyone that, that you've kind of been, been involved with, it's rewarding in the end. It makes everything, all the crazy, all the bullshit, all the stupidity that you face, every single thing, worth it in the end. I've seen a lot of it in my day. I've experienced a lot of it in my day. I went through three years of idiocy <laughs> and working really, really hard. And the one thing that kept me going all those years and that keeps me going even now is seeing the end result of the work that I do. It all comes back, I promise, guys. Thank you for sharing that because I know that advocacy work can seem really daunting to a lot of people. And it's hard because you don't see the payoff right away. It doesn't happen overnight. Things don't change right away. But knowing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that that work is incredibly valuable and very rewarding once you get there, I think it's a really inspiring thing to hear. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And also, like I will say that through the work, you also find, like, you find your people. You know, you find people. And it's like this very supportive, really cool uh, community with a lot of interesting characters, I will say. Um, but once you get in there and uh, see all the, the difference you can do, you can make, and see not only just as like a, uh, a group, but you individually, all worth it in the end. It just it keeps you going, it keeps you in a happy place. Well, thank you for sharing all of that, Amrit. No problem. Thanks so much to Amrit for sharing her insights. The work she does is so incredibly important to help build capacity and bring people together to create change. In our next episode, we're going to talk to Salvatore, who's a child and youth care practitioner. Thanks for listening to The Social Work Social. By sharing information and stories, we hope that you will gain new knowledge and empathy for those who are different from you. All of us have unique backgrounds and experiences, but through our stories, we can learn to relate to one another. Our communities are currently facing extreme challenges, and we all have different strengths and skills that we bring to the table to help combat those challenges. Through working together, we can make a difference. I challenge you to go outside of your comfort zone to find an issue that you can lend your support. Tune in next Friday for another episode of The Social Work Social.